Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, October 11th, 2012. Okay. Got a lot of stuff to do today. Told you I was excited about this yesterday, and I am. Not because of the bad teaching we're going to have to expose... Because there's uh, some opportunity for some good biblical teaching. So, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. We live in, well, spiritually treacherous times. There is... Just a strong delusion out there. I, that's probably a good way of describing it. I think that's a biblical way of describing it. And a lot of people are believing lies about God that are being spoken by people who are kicking the name God around, kicking the name Jesus around. But the things that they're saying are not in accord with what Scripture has revealed. As a result of it, they are not really truly proclaiming the biblical gospel. They're not proclaiming the biblical, historic, real Jesus. In fact, they're proclaiming a Jesus of their own imagination. And the uh, what's going on is just crazy off-the-chain bad deception. I mean, there's a thousand and one different ways to deceive people. So what we do here is we slow down and we encourage people to open up their Bibles to see what Scripture says, because I kind of work from the same presupposition, and that's that all of us, you know, me, you, everyone else, too, doesn't matter if you're a cat, cur or not either, but none of us have really had a face-to-face conversation with God, that each and every one of us, well, we're dependent Upon God revealing himself to us. Otherwise, we, well, we're just grasping in the dark. And so the question is, who can you trust? What revelation can you trust? And just because somebody claims to be using the trustworthy revelation, that would be the Bible itself, doesn't mean that they're teaching correctly about God and Christ. In fact, it's just absolutely fascinatingly awful and bizarre that people who claim to be on Jesus' team, claim the name of Christian, claim the name of Christ follower, or whatever the in vogue thing is that they're saying now, 
um, that they have the audacity to teach contrary to what Scripture says and to teach contrary to what the church has taught from the beginning. Because why? Well, the church from the beginning has taught the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If you're teaching something new, something never before heard, something that hasn't been a primary focus in teaching in the church through its history, well, chances are better than 99.9% that you're teaching, well, heresy. Something, well, not what God has revealed. So... This program is well. It can be. It can be a jolt to the system. It can, it, you know. Because here's the reason why, and that is, is that I don't give um, respect, and I mean that I don't give respect to people who teach falsely, and um, I don't think that it helps the body of Christ for me to say, "Oh yeah, so and so, he's a man of God, but he teaches heresy." It just doesn't work like that. So I, I mean, I, <clears throat> I am very old school in that sense. And if you would take time to get out of the 21st century, and, and think, how do you do that? What are you talking about, Chris? You know, I, I just keep thinking about just the fantastic points that Carl Truman made in that video we played the uh, the audio from the video we played the other day, and that is, is that Christianity is a historic religion. And we live in a time when everybody is, well, they're futurists. They're always looking for the next thing to grasp onto and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, no, 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 Christianity makes you, makes you, real biblical Christianity makes you look backwards. And uh, I've, I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it probably a hundred more times on Fighting for the Faith. There is a fantastic essay written by C.S. Lewis called On the Reading of Old Books. And you can find it online. You can find it online. I strongly recommend that you go and Google it if you haven't read it. And here's the reason why. Is that Lewis, um, by the way, the occasion for this particular essay was that was the intro to the what was then a new translation of Athanasius, uh, St. Athanasius of Alexandria, Athanasius, uh, his work on, uh, on the Incarnation. And which is just a fantastic. Uh, yeah, I've read that. That's just brilliant. Anyway, sorry, I, I digress. But uh, Lewis, in, in that introduction, makes the point that you, you know, that we Christians um, engage in chronological snobbery, and I think it's worse than that. And um, and that really, if you want to get a feel for what Christianity is all about, understand this: because we're all sinful. This is Roseboro's paraphrase, by the way. We're all sinful. Each era of the church, okay, each generation of the church has made mistakes. This is absolutely true, okay? When you read the church fathers, you realize, okay, there's some really good stuff here. And at the same time, you go, whoa, that's kind of crazy and bizarre and doesn't square with Scripture. See, even the church fathers, in fact, especially the church fathers, everybody gets tested by the clear teaching of the Word of God. If they run afoul of what God's Word teaches, well, we're not to accept it. We're to reject it. But that doesn't mean, at least in the case of the Church Fathers, that we're dealing with people who are rank heretics unless they're Valentinian Gnostics or you know somebody like Marcion or Arius or Pelagius or things like that. But uh, the point is this, is that each generation of Christianity um, is guilty of making mistakes. Okay? 
And it's really easy to do. Uh, we're prone to it like you know, well, magnets sticking together. And the reason why is because of our sinful nature, and that affects all of our faculties, especially our thinking and our brain. So the idea here is, is that uh, even though each generation has made mistakes, each generation makes different mistakes. Different. And so if you want to have a better grasp of the errors that are being committed in the church in the 21st century, they become much easier to spot if you do some time traveling. And you're going, but Chris, I don't have a TARDIS. I don't have the flux capacitor or a DeLorean. And to which I would say, pa, you don't need any of that. All you need are old books. And that's C.S. Lewis's argument. So get yourself out of the 21st century. Stop reading books that have been written in the last year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years, 50 years. Get your head out of this century and get your head into the past. Okay? Get your head into the past. Especially get your head into the past in cultures and in times and places that are not Western, uh, what I mean by Western, uh, you know, Western Republic democracies in modernity kind of stuff, okay? Get yourself into, uh, well, the writings of the church fathers. Uh, I, read Augustine. Read Irenaeus. Um, uh, read Luther. Read uh, the Chemnitz. You can even read Calvin, okay? Now, I am not a Calvinist, so I don't agree with some of Calvin's presuppositions. But keep this in mind, Okay. When you get your head out of the 21st century, you are going to be placed squarely into a world with a different set of assumptions. The furniture has been arranged differently, and you're going to realize these people are not talking the same way that people do in the 21st century, especially Christians. And then you're gonna, you might ask yourself a question like, well, why is that? You see, when you get to that point, you're going to go, oh, wait, that, there's probably a reason for this. And there are reasons for this. In fact, if you'd like to get you know, kind of a cursory uh, flight over the battlefield as to why some of the things are going on the way they're going on in the church in the United States today, go back through the archives of Fighting for the Faith and listen to the lectures on church history that we presented here by Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis of uh, Concordia University, Irvine. Fantastic lectures um, regarding pietism and, and, you know, kind of the spiritual roots of what's going on in the United States. Get, but get your head out of the 21st century. Do some tri- time travel. Keep in mind books, what they really are. It, it, I, I think this is a great way to think of a book. A book is somebody's mind put into writing, okay? And so what happens is, is that people die. Okay, but they want what they thought to carry on. Some thoughts are worth carrying on, and they're so they're so profound and good that they become classic works that everybody goes to, regardless of what era they live in. Right? Okay, some stuff that people's minds put to paper. Well, the, what's written is just as jumbled and convoluted as what's in their head. It's not worth passing along, and things like that end up going anyway. So you get what I'm saying. But so here's the idea. Avail yourself of the greatest minds of Christianity. Avail yourself of the greatest minds of Christianity and 
by doing so and making sure that you have a steady diet and your reading of stuff that's outside of the 21st century, you are going to be far more skilled and adept at identifying the common errors that are taking place now and maybe by God's grace you will be able to contribute to offering a solution and a corrective to it, okay? So that the gospel will be proclaimed, so that Christ will be exalted, so that sinners will be brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's the idea. So I I can't say it strongly enough. Get out of the 21st century. Don't come back for a while. Be gone. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying. Anyway, so, you know, just... Some good advice uh, it you know that was given to me a long, long time ago, and let's just put it this way. It has reaped dividends that I cannot even begin to possibly repay. So, all right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Got a little kind of a fun little tongue-in-cheek segment that I'm going to do here that will probably run through most of the first hour. But um, I've, I've got a difficult seeker-driven math problem. You all you know, remember when you were in elementary school and you had to do those word math problems? Like, you know, when Sal- if Sally is on a train heading north uh, to Chicago at 47 miles an hour and her friend Becky is heading to, you know, to you know, Florida on, on the southbound train at 37. Six miles an hour. What time is it in Poughkeepsie? You know things like that. Uh, I've got one of those type of seeker-driven math problems that I I, I I need to share with you, and you know just pose some you know some uh, solutions to the problem that have been uh, put out there on Facebook because I I put it out on Facebook and Twitter today, and some of the responses are just worth passing along. I have a Rick Joiner update. Um, I told you about this on Tuesday. He's apparently embracing Mormon prophecy. We're going to take a listen to Rick Joiner on Jim Baker's program talking about Mormon prophecy, the so-called white horse prophecy. Uh, we've got a brand new Max Holiday sketch today. In honor of, of, um, of Peter Haas, of um, Substance Church and his sermon on, you know, entitled Pharisectomy and, and how he's going on about having religiously transmitted diseases and how we need to get rid of human traditions like expository Bible teaching, um, the Lord's Supper, and... Um, hymns and songs and things like that. So uh, we've uh, got a brand new Max Holiday sketch, one of two that we've actually already recorded. This, the first one will be today. And the name of this uh, Max Holiday sketch is entitled Religiously Transmitted Disease. We'll premiere that before we go to the first break. Um, I've got a news story regarding Rachel Held Evans um, and uh, and Lifeway Publishing. That's the, uh, the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, has uh, dropped her book, entitled A Year of Biblical Womanhood, and we'll take a look at that. And, uh, in fact, I may not get to that story. (laughs) In fact, I'm looking at my time going, you know, in fact, I'm going to make an executive decision. And you're thinking, you have the power to do it? Yeah, I'm I'm the only executive here at uh, (laughs) Pirate Christian Radio Fighting for the Faith. So I'm unilaterally making an executive decision. I'm going to hang on to that news story until tomorrow. In fact, when we come back from the break, I'm going to spend – from you know the end of the second uh, end of the first break all the way to the second break, uh, looking at Shane Hips's recent uh, video uh, preview for his upcoming book about 
uh, selling water near a river or something like that. But this is a blatant attack against Christianity uh, by Shane Hips, who used to be the co-preaching pastor at Mars Hill at the same time that Rob Bell was there. They've both since left because, you remember, Shane Hips, you know, he, he, he wanted to do more important things than preach every Sunday. And so, um, you know, he ended up, uh, you know, resigning his pastoral post out there at uh, Mars Hill in Grand Rapids, and uh, so that he could focus on things like this. So, and the fun thing is, is that I've got some backup, uh, you know, uh, data on this because I've had several conversations with Shane Hips over the years. And what's rather fascinating is that uh, if back in 2009, I covered. Uh, at least mentioned and it was did a segment on a sermon that he preached on this exact same topic. You'll, I'll explain that when we get there. And then in hour number two, I cannot believe I did this. In hour number two, we're going to be reviewing, uh, wait for it, a Carrie Shook sermon. Yeah. So uh, those of you men listening to uh, Fighting for the Faith, um, since we're going to be reviewing a Carrie Shook sermon, you might want to go get like a Monster Energy drink, um, lift some weights, um, you know, grab your um, Harley Davidson posters. If you have a Harley Davidson, you might want to go ride it for a little while and do some things that will help boost your testosterone levels because every single time we do a Carrie Shook sermon, um, I feel the testosterone literally just draining from my body. It's absolutely one of the most painful things I've ever experienced. And so we're going to be reviewing a sermon by Carrie Shook called Time Crunch. So those of you struggling with time management issues, yeah, don't worry. You're not going to hear about, you know, Christ and crucified or anything that Jesus really accomplished and did for us during this sermon. No, no, no. We're going to get some really relevant life tips for life transformation in the <clears throat> area of time management. So uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and let's begin with our difficult math problem, okay? So uh, let me let me pose the problem here, and then, I, you know, and maybe read a few of the potential solutions that have been offered to this particular math problem. Again, this is a word problem, so um, so here's the question, okay? This, this is the math equation that we need a little bit of help with. And uh, here it is. <clears throat> if Ed Young is in his private jet flying to Miami at 557 miles per hour and Perry Noble is writing a blog post where he calls bloggers haters, how many minutes will Stephen Furtick talk about himself during this weekend's sermon? Again, let me read the question. If Ed Young is in his private jet flying to Miami at 557 miles per hour and Perry Noble is writing a blog post where he calls bloggers haters, how many minutes will Stephen Furtick talk about himself during this weekend's sermon? Now, I know some of you right off the bat are thinking, how would I begin to answer such a question? Um, you know, one, uh, one person, Amy Spreeman, she suggested that I ask Siri, I, I did ask Siri about this and she wasn't able to help me. So, um, but I, funny enough, there is a solution to the problem. Okay. There is a solution to the problem. So I, I don't want you to think that this is not solvable. Okay. So in fact, let me read to you, um, one of the proposed solutions that's really kind of in the right category. It, it's right in the, in the right vein as to how to figure out how to solve this particular thorny and difficult, uh, word problem. Um, Christy writes, she says, 
All right. In order to figure this out, you take half the diameter, half the diameter of the circle maker, added to the square root uh, of the number of sun stand still prayers, divided by your obligatory ten percent tithe, in order to break the curse that's currently on your money. Now, gotta tell you. That is that's not all of the way, all the things you need to do in order to solve this word problem. But that I mean that's going to help solve the bulk of this particular problem. So you know, Christy, I think was absolutely right on there. So I mean that that that'll help. But what I'm going to do here, I'm going to just leave, kind of hang us out here right now. We'll, we'll come back and revisit some of the answers that were uh, to, to helping solve this uh, particular thorny. Difficult, seeker-driven math problem. But um, so we're going to change gears real quick here. Like I said, we'll come back to this uh, this math problem and uh, read some more of the um, the perplexing solutions offered to this perplexing question. With that, let's uh, move on to our next segment. Chief Lane, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. An laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Now this is our uh, um, Dominionist update. We play this whenever we, you know we uh, do updates with Rick Joyner or Cindy Jacobs, you know, folks like that who are into this, you know, Seven Mountains Dominionist mandate kind of nonsense. All right. So uh, to set this up for you properly, um, recently on September 24th of this year. Um, Rick Joyner uh, appeared on, well, um, Jim Baker's uh, television program. And I point this out every time, and you're thinking, Jim Baker, Jim, uh, PTL scandal? Jim, yeah, that guy. Um, you know, he's um, now on television and regularly has people on as guests, and he's um, encouraging people to stock up food and, you know, prepare for the coming apocalypse and stuff like that. But uh, what was rather interesting is is that uh, he had Rick Joyner of Morningstar on the program, and they were discussing Mitt Romney and Mormon prophecy. And, uh, yeah, it maybe I should just play the segment and, you know, chime in accordingly. I'll leave a little bit of room on the front end of it so we can hear the context in which the statements that Rick Joyner made were made so that you can hear what's going on. So without any further ado, here's Rick Joyner on Jim Baker's program. You just let them explain what they're talking about. To me, this is incredible evidence of how close we are to revival in America. Yes. I mean, look at the response. Now, I know one of the big issues that we have in the presidential election is Romney is an you know, Mormon. Mormon. Yes, he is. In Scripture, the people who had a mixture, who were the Samaritans, were the most responsive to the gospel. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, see, the problem is they teach a false Jesus and a false Christ. And a false, you know, and and so they actually fall under the anathemas of um, Galatians chapter one. 
You see what I'm saying? They're not a mixture of anything. The, the Jesus they believe in isn't the biblical Jesus. The gospel that they hold to isn't the biblical gospel. They're not a mixture of anything. They, they're not partly Christian, sort of kind of Christian-ish. No, they've hijacked Christian language and poured into it meaning that has nothing to do with what Scripture reveals regarding those terms. The, the, woman, at, <laughs> the woman at the well? Here's one woman living in adultery, had five divorces, goes out and preaches the entire city, comes out. Yeah, so we should just, you know, that's hope there that Romney's going to be just like the Samaritan woman at the well. Good night. Okay, Philip goes to Samaria. What happens? I mean, here are the people who are the most responsive to the gospel. Great. Why don't you send your people? No, we don't want you sending your people. Let's send missionaries quick to Utah. They're probably ready and ripe for the gospel, right? I do believe Mormonism is a mixture. I mean, and you'd be wrong. It's not. It's a flat-out apostatizing heresy, and they've got a false Jesus, a false Christ, and a false gospel. And like I said, they fall into the anathemas of uh, Galatians chapter 1. Many of them are solid believers in Jesus Christ as their atonement. Yes. No, they're not. The Jesus they believe in is not the is not the Son of God in human flesh, second person of the Trinity. The God they believe in, it, Jesus, is one God among many gods, who's the uh, you know the firstborn spirit child of Elohim who lives on planet Kolob. Definitions matter, Rick. Um, but there's other stuff in there. You know, sure. let's don't go into that. Sure. Jehovah's Witnesses, in my opinion, have a lot of stuff mixed in. Yeah, that way again would be your opinion, and your opinion isn't worth anything because it's completely contrary to what Scripture says. Watch and see; these people groups become the most responsive to the Lord in these times. Coming in droves, all of them together. Uh, the Mormons I have met have done more to feed people. They have literally factories of canning and giving and all. So, yeah, don't don't give them credit, though. Uh, and here's the reason why. Um, you know why they're feeding people and doing stuff like that? Because they're trying to earn the right to become a god. It's a means to the end. They're trying to become gods. So they're really not serving their neighbor. They're trying to serve themselves and earn brownie points in the, you know, with Elohim so that they can ascend to the status of God themselves and be given their own planet with many wives. Come on. So, you know, I, I, I have to say, say that. I know they're living out what's written in the pages of the Bible. We may all not agree on everything. And no one's saved by the law. It says in Hebrews uh, Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. They don't have faith in the biblical Jesus. They believe in a false Jesus and a false gospel. So, I mean, the Judaizers were very moral people, were they not? They tithed all the way down to, you know, a, t- a tenth of their spices, and they gave alms to the poor and stuff like that. Jesus didn't say, oh, well, yeah, you know, <laughs> they're living it out. No, he called down woes upon them because they didn't repent and believe. But I know... Yeah, in fact, let, let, me, let me give you what the Apostle Paul wrote. I mean, let's take a look at the Apostle Paul and what he said about himself prior to becoming a Christian. And if you have your Bible, flip on over to uh, Philippians, well, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And here's what Paul says regarding the Judaizers. Now, 
Does anyone here want to make the mistaken claim of saying, oh, those Judaizers, they were nothing but a bunch of murderous, lying, adulterers, and worldly people? They weren't. They were extremely religious, okay? Extremely religious, very rigorous in their keeping of the Ten Commandments, right? And Paul was one of them. He was a Pharisee. Listen listen what he writes. He says, look out for the dogs. He calls the Judaizers dogs. Look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers. These are religious people. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, will I have more? Watch this. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So, I mean, hmm. And weird, but watch now what he thinks of all of his righteousness under the law. Okay? Here's what he says, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I've counted everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, it's all things, and I count them, all of his good works. He counts them as rubbish. Yeah, it's a lot stronger than that in the Greek. It's scubalon. Think um, big, fresh dog turd on your yard. That's what a scubalon is. Okay? I count all of my good works under the law as scubalon in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So here we've got Jim Baker, not the sharpest theological tool in the shed, and Rick Joyner, you know, um, a complete theological loon, um, basically pontificating their opinions regarding Mormons and and talking them up like, oh, well, they're such moral people and stuff like that. Yet the Apostle Paul looks at all of his moral good works before he was brought to faith in Christ as dog do, scubalon, right? What does this tell you? They have no clue what they're talking about. Mormons are not... Some, you know, some, you know, it's not as if there, it's some corruption of Christianity and they're, and they're mostly Christian or partly Christian. They're not Christian at all. And their pointing to their good works shows that they don't understand at all what the what the gospel is and that we're not to point to our good works as if somehow that's a, you know, that that proves definitively that uh, we have right standing before God. It doesn't. The law, by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight, Romans 3 says. One of my dear Mormon friends, I said, what about Jesus? He said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died on the cross, rose dead, he's my, dead, he's my Savior. I said, man, that's good enough for me, you know. Uh, he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. You see, see, Son of God means something very different. Just because they use the phrase Son of God doesn't mean that they mean the same thing that the Scripture reveals. And I I know we all want to fight because 
Church people love to fight. I don't want to fight. I want to find out where we can agree together. Yeah, we can't agree with them regarding what the Jesus they believe in or the gospel they preach. And I agree with anyone who agrees that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he died on the cross, he rose from the grave, and, he, and he's our coming king. So and lives that's, it out. That's, Every group is going to have some people out on the fringes. Sure. But. I'm very careful because I know... <laughs> You know, people say, well, you can't do, can't do that. They won't let you do that. Or, uh, you know, they can't arrest you. But, you know, I've seen from the other side. Uh, so I'm very hesitant to talk politics. But uh, can, I, can I mention? What does it mean if we would, put, if we would have a Mormon president? What, people seem to fear that, you know. Uh, well, the Mormons and the Catholics have been on the front line of the battle against some of the, the crucial issues of our times. And I don't agree with either one of those groups on a lot of issues, but I am so, I am so thankful to be in the trenches with them. Me too. You know, Me and that too. they're doing what they're doing. And, uh, but, you know, of course, one of the big issues today is the white horse prophecy. And, uh, you, know, it's been in, you know, it's been in the news. Romney gets asked about it. All the time, it was a prophecy supposedly given by Joseph Smith in 1857, I believe. Uh, it was first published in the 1890s. I think it was 1893. But the Mormon Church does not. They they say we don't know. We don't know if it was really written by Joseph Smith or given by Joseph Smith. Given by Joseph Smith or where they, they're just kind of it's a non-issue, and that's been Romney's thing. But the prophecy is and. I have not studied Joseph Smith. I don't know that much about, but I've heard he had. Yeah, um, you might want to do that before you start proclaiming Mormons to be somehow like, you know, mixed Christians or something. They're not. Many accurate, many accurate prophecies and many false doctrines. Okay, Paul told, you know, he even said some of the Christian false prophets were right. Uh, no, he didn't. There isn't a single passage you can point to where Paul said that. You can be a false prophet and get stuff right. Wow. Now, I'm not making, you know, I just don't know. Uh, and I, I can't personally say about him being right about a lot of things because I haven't researched it. But the white horse prophecy I have researched, it was supposedly attributed to Joseph Smith. It was that during the time when Mormons... We're enjoying great prosperity that the U.S. Constitution would hang by thread and that the Lord was going to raise up a Mormon president to save our Constitution. Yeah, 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 man, you have no clue what the white horse prophecy is about, okay? Let me read to you a little bit about the white horse prophecy so that you understand what this thing is about, okay? Uh, the White Horse Prophecy is a statement purported to have been made in 1843 by Joseph Smith, founder of the Latter-day Saints, regarding the future of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, and the United States of America. The Latter-day Saints, according to the prophecy, would, quote, go to the Rocky Mountains and be a great and mighty people, identified figuratively with the white horse described in the, re in, in the Revelation of John. The prophecy further predicts that the United States Constitution will one day hang like a thread and will be saved by the efforts of the white 
horse. And some have speculated on the basis of the white horse prophecy that Mormons expect the United States eventually to become a a theocracy dominated by the Church of Latter-day Saints. So the gist of the white horse prophecy, if we're to take this uh, properly, is that we're all going to, in the United States, end up living under Mormon Sharia law that will become a theocracy. And the head of the United States would pretty much really become whoever the current prophet is who's presiding over the Mormon church. So, yeah, before you get all excited about Mitt Romney in that sense uh, and start attributing the white horse prophecy to him and stuff like that, you need to do your homework and understand kind of the finer details and implications of the white horse prophecy. If that thing comes true... It doesn't mean that Mormonism is true. It means we are in deep kimchi because we're all going to end up living under a theocracy run by the Mormon church. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good political result to me. I just, you know, I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat. Trust me, you don't want to live under Mormon Sharia. <sighs> Ridiculous. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. During this break, well, we've got the premiere of our new Max Holiday sketch entitled Religiously Transmitted Disease. You don't want to miss it. We'll catch you on the other side of the break. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Okay then, uh, Mr. Haas, the results of the test have come back. What are they, Doc? Uh, not good, that's what. What do you mean? What's wrong with me? Where do you want me to start? I- is that all mine? That and the seven other stacks of paperwork just like it. Oh dear. Oh dear indeed. I guess we can start off with the good news. Okay. You don't have cancer. Oh, thank God. Funny that you'd say that. Why? Now, don't get ahead of yourself. As I said before, you don't have cancer. And that's about it for the good news. Ah! Moving on. This here is an x-ray of your esophagus and your stomach. Wait! What are those? Please, try to stay calm while I explain the prognosis. For the sake of contrast, I've included the same type of x-ray from a healthy patient. Oh, 
no. Oh, no, indeed. Now, I've seen my fair share of cases like these, but nothing is ever compared to what you've got going on. Uh, are those? Yes. Those are pentagrams emblazoned on the unprotected skin of your esophagus. Is that the reason For that... your heartburn? Oh, no. Not even close. If you look closely, we've identified this black lump in your stomach as brimstone. That is the cause of your heartburn. And no, Nexium won't fix it. How can this be happening to me? Well, to put it simply... You've contracted a religiously transmitted disease. But how? Well, there are many ways. One of the more common ways is to preach heresy and to openly accept the teaching of the devil and his ways. But, 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 but... Oh, trust me, this is only the tip of the iceberg. Do you know how much sulfur we found in your colon? You found what in my what? Sulfur. You see, it's normal to find in some of the victims of possession. But you were something extraordinary. We found three whole pounds of it in there. Three pounds? Don't even get me started on the pH of your blood, though. Hoo-wee! There was some nasty stuff. Melted right through our equipment when one vial exploded in the centrifuge. Yes, sir. You've got yourself a really nasty religiously transmitted disease. What am I going to do? For starters, I would stop spewing those lies you pass off as sermons down at your church. That should start to alleviate some of the burning sensations. I on that note, I would suggest some good old-fashioned expository teaching because the only thing that's going to fight off this disease is the Word of God. I can't believe what I'm hearing! That's obvious. You certainly won't be able to unless the Father himself draws you. There's got to be an easier way! i got to ask you, have you considered baptism? What's that got to do with anything? Oh, I don't know. Circumcision of the heart not done by human hands for the forgiveness of your sins. Ring any bells? You're not being helpful! Well, if you don't want to do any of that, I guess all I can do is fill out your prescriptions. Here you go. What? What's a three-month supply of vision lack supposed to do? Oh, trust me. You're gonna need it. I want to invite you to register for the free Biblical Worldview Weekend Rally coming to the following cities the fall of 2012. These are one night and they're free, but you must register online at worldviewweekend.com. We're going to start out October 7th in Destin, Florida. Then we're on to Wichita, Kansas, Des Moines, Iowa, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rogers, Arkansas, Peoria, Illinois, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Rockford, Illinois. They're free, they're one night, and it's the Biblical Worldview Weekend Rally. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. That's worldviewweekend.com. Please post this on your Facebook, put it out to your email address book. Help us get out the word about these free fall 2012 Biblical Worldview Weekend Rallies. Speakers will include myself, Brandon House, along with Justin Peters, Mike Gendron, Jimmy D. Young, and a few others. Don't miss out on the fall Worldview Weekend rallies coming to these cities. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, Mormonism is not Christianity. They have a false Jesus, a false gospel, a false God, a false salvation. It lands people in hell, not in the kingdom of God. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute... You can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, before we get on to the next segment with uh, Shane Hips, uh, let me revisit our uh, our mathematical problem. Uh, yeah, we uh, were taking a look at this earlier in the program today, and I want to come back to the very difficult, seeker-driven math problem. Here's the, here's the problem again. If Ed Young is in his private jet flying to to Miami at 557 miles per hour, and Perry Noble is writing a blog post where he calls bloggers haters, how many minutes will Stephen Furtick talk about himself during this weekend's sermon? Uh, again, th- this is actually solvable. Now, I know that, that that might not seem possible, but it's absolutely true. Now, uh, Josh and Ashley uh, on my Facebook wall left a message that said, well, we can compute the answer using Driscoll's dead bodies quotient and then filter that to arrive at the Osteen effect. Now, see, this is th- th- these are great methods by which we can crack this uh, particular conundrum and uh, and solve uh, for you know for this problem so i'm i'm all for that uh, another person points out that this is joshua he says if we divide by the by the time for bill johnson to get his knife back um, and then uh, raise that to the power of the sum of all the numbers William Tapley believes represents Abraham Lincoln, and then plug that number into the uh, derivative, derivative of Joel Osteen's teeth reflective equation, well, then we get fish. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> almost forgot to carry the decimal somewhere in there. Yeah, I see. You know, now, fish is close. I, I got to tell you, the answer fish is is... It's very, very close to the answer that we're looking for here. So, you know, I'm thinking that maybe uh, you forgot to factor in the Driscoll dead body quotient in, in, in order to try to solve for the problem. By the way, I'll go ahead and give you the answer, by the way. 
and explain to you how we arrive at that. Ready? Okay, here's the, let, me, let me read the math equation again. And by the way, using a combination of any one of those different methods, you can actually solve for this uh, particular math problem. So he, here it is. Ed Young, if Ed Young is in his private jet flying to Miami at 557 miles per hour, and Perry Noble is writing a blog post where he calls bloggers haters, how many minutes will Stephen Furtick talk about himself during this weekend's sermon? By the way, the answer is 42. And you're thinking, 42? How did you get that? Well, using kind of a combination of all of those different methods. But keep in mind, um, if you're familiar with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that 42 is the answer to life, the universe, and, well, everything. So there's the answer to our very difficult, seeker-driven math problem. Moving along. These are the sounds of the postmodern Emergent Philharmonic Orchestra. Dunk Paget presiding, and this is their rendition of um, Strauss's Also Sprock Zarathustra. It's an homage to um, the late postmodern philosopher, nihilist um, Friedrich Nietzsche. Yeah, as you can tell, um, they are being guided by the spirit rather than being limited by those constrictive and overly defined modernist definitions of musical notes. Just let yourself go as you take in this tour de force move of the Spirit of God. got to tell you I, to this day that <laughs> that update music cracks me up okay so uh, that's kind of the setup uh, we're doing a an emergent church update and uh, one of the premier members of the emergent church although some people don't even really know of his uh, his status within the movement itself is Shane Hips formerly of Mars Hill up in Grand Rapids he was for a while the co-preaching pastor with Rob Bell. Now, let me ask you just a quick question. If uh, if you were called into pulpit ministry, now I understand there's a lot of women who listen to the program, so just consider this a hypothetical, but uh, here's the idea. If you were called into pulpit ministry and asked to be co-pastor or an associate pastor at a particular congregation, do you think that you should take the call if... Um, you find yourselves theologically at odds with the person that you're co-preaching or co-pastoring with. Probably not. In fact, what I've noticed is is that when it comes to pastoral ministry and things of that sort, that generally, and uh, this is just something I've noticed, that people who work together in the same church are theologically on the same page. If they're not, then it causes all kinds of trouble and turmoil and things like that. Have, have you noticed that? So I, I, I would just ask the logical question, and here it is. Are you ready? Do you think that uh, that Rob Bell wanted, because remember, he, it, Rob Bell was all for and really was pulling for Shane Hips to uh, be co-pastor there at uh, Mars Hill. So do you think that Rob Bell wanted Shane Hips at Mars Hill because... 
Shane Hips believed differently than Rob Bell or because he believes pretty much the same thing? Well, um, I, you see, I would go with the, well, probably he wanted him there because uh, Shane Hips probably pretty much teaches the same thing that Rob Bell believes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's see that I would go with that. I think that's a probably a safe, 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 safe answer. So, um, with that, let me play for you audio from this new video that was posted from the folks that are getting ready to publish uh, Shane Hips's brand new book. By the way, he well, he resigned his uh, preaching post at Mars Hill not too long ago because it's kind of getting in the way of him being able to do things well like this. You know, write a book called Selling Water by the River. Here's Shane Hips to explain what his new tome is all about. Jesus and the religion that bears his name are not the same thing. If Christianity is like a sail, then Jesus is more like the wind. Sails come in lots of different shapes and sizes. Some are better at catching the wind than others, but there is always and only one wind. Okay, now I've got a question for you. Okay, where in the Bible is Jesus likened to a wind, and where in the Bible is the church or Christianity likened to a sail? Mm, I'm, yeah, nothing's really coming to mind here. Um, but yeah, however, you, so I think this we might want to heed the warning given to us. Uh, in the book of Colossians chapter 2. Um, yeah, Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 4. Paul is warning the church at Colossae, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible-sounding arguments. Uh-huh. Yeah, see, you don't want to be um, led astray from biblical Christianity by those who put forward plausible sounding arguments. So he, we've already we got a problem because this is a quote plausible sounding argument. The problem is is that there doesn't seem to be any anchor point um in the written word of God. So I ask the question again, where in the Bible is Jesus um represented as a wind and Christianity as a sail? I'm not familiar with those passages, uh, but let me back it up just a little bit and watch what he does with this. Christianity is like a sail then Jesus is more like the wind. Sails come in lots of different shapes and sizes. Some are better at catching the wind than others, but there is always and only one wind. And it shows no favoritism or loyalty. A sailor could paint the word wind on its sail. So the wind shows no favoritism or loyalty. It's a weird way to talk about Jesus, don't you think? Jesus shows no favoritism, nor does he show any loyalty. No loyalty to Christianity. That's the point. And claim that this sail belongs to the wind, but the wind will not turn around and claim to belong to that sail. Okay, so the sail belongs to the wind, but the wind won't turn around and say that it belongs to the sail. Weird way to talk about Jesus, don't you think? The relationship between these two things is one way. A sail without wind is a limp flag. Wind without a sail is still the wind. Plausible-sounding argument, not biblical, though. Gets worse. Hang on. Just because Christianity claims Jesus as its own does not mean that Jesus claims Christianity as his own. (laughs) 
Oh. So just because Christianity claims Jesus as its own doesn't mean Jesus claims Christianity as his own. Bizarre way. Bizarre way to um, talk about Jesus for sure. Now, I I, I don't want to take credit for this. I got a, a listener. His name is uh, John Wilkes. And uh, he published, he, he wrote a quick comment on my Facebook wall. Now, I'm going to steal the argument for the future, but I want to make sure that here, at the first time I use it, this, this he gets credit for it. Here's what he said. He says, Is not the church the bride of Christ? What husband would be ashamed to claim his bride or to be bound by her? This man, Shane Hips makes our Savior out to be an adulterer who has more to do with Leonard Skinner's The Breeze than with the gospel. Free to use that song as Pastor Hips' theme song, if you like. I, I might do that in the future, by the way. It depends on how you know how many more times we have to do updates with uh, Shane Hips, but that might be a good way to uh, do it. So here's the problem, okay? Kind of the, the, the most important argument right up front is that Scripture, the New Testament, reveals that Jesus is the bridegroom of the church. In other words, Jesus is married to the church. This is one of the imageries given. So the church is the, the bride of Christ who's, been, who's had her robes, her garments washed in the blood of the Lamb and is now spotless and white, right? Yeah, right? And, uh, in fact, the, the last day, the, you know, when the eschaton finally falls, um, that's, you know, that's referred to as the great marriage feast of the Lamb, right? So here we got a problem. Uh, the Jesus that Shane Hips is describing is pretty much a philanderer. Uh, he's an adulterer. I mean, he's out hopping around from bed to bed and basically sleeping with Christianity, sleeping with Islam, sleeping with Buddhism and all that kind of stuff. Right. So here we got Shane Hips's philandering Jesus, who who really is not bound uh, or even committed you know, solely to his church. Strange, isn't it? You know, let me back this up, because this is just about as offensive as it gets. The relationship between these two things is one way. A sail without wind is a limp flag. Wind without a sail is still the wind. Just because Christianity claims Jesus as its own does not mean that Jesus claims Christianity as his own. Mm, Yeah, wow. Again, where are you getting any of this? Um, Because it ain't in the Bible. Where did we get the idea that Jesus binds himself to a religion? What if Jesus could do his work with or without a religion? I'm not opposed to religion. I've been a pastor for a decade. Yeah, that doesn't mean anything. It's just that my interest is the wind. That's where the life is. That's where the energy is. The life Jesus promised of boundless joy, indestructible peace, and unending love are gifts of the wind. And they're available in this life, not just the next. If we miss that, we squander this brief and beautiful existence. Yeah, again, where is any of this written in the Bible, Shane? The trick is knowing where to look. Yeah, the place not to look is your book. The question is, have you found it? 
Yeah, now this is all just basically postmodern nonsense. Now, a few years ago, back in 2009, I had a couple of conversations with Shane Hips. This was prior to the announcement that he was going to be going to uh, Mars Hill. And uh, as a result of my conversation with him, that drove me to want to do a little bit deeper research on him. And uh, this segment that I'm going to play for you from a sermon that he preached really a few years ago, um, he was preaching through the Gospel of John. This is a sermon from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, called Wind in the Sail. You'll notice the same themes, the same language, the same thoughts uh, that he's communicating in his forthcoming book are found in this sermon. I don't know if it's still available anymore, by the way, online. It was originally part of um, the sermons that were preached at Trinity Mennonite Church, which I think is in Arizona. I, I'm not at somewhere Phoenix-ish area. You know, I'm not. Don't hold me to it. I just know it's in the general vicinity of the Phoenix area in Arizona, where Shane Hips was the pastor prior to taking the call at Mars Hill. And I want you to listen to this, and what we're going to do is we're going to utterly blow this out of the water using the clear teaching of the Word of God. Shane Hips here is teaching rank heresy and teaching uh, a universalism that is not taught in Scripture. The Bible doesn't teach universalism, by the way, like at all. But it's, you know, I don't see, again, go back to my question. Uh, do you think that uh, Rob Bell was excited to have Shane Hips come and preach with him there at Marshall because he believed differently than he did or because he believed the same thing? You're going to find that there's a reason why this theology that you're going to hear in this soundbite from this sermon sounds eerily similar to the same universalistic heresy that we heard from Rob Bell from the Love Wins book. There's a good reason for that. So uh, he, let me... Uh, Cue this up. Here is uh, a section from the Wind in the Sail sermon preached by uh, Shane Hips a few years back at Trinity Mennonite Church. Listen in. The Jews and the Greeks, nothing in common, nothing at all in common. Didn't even use the same language most of the time. So here John comes along and says, hey, to the Jews, you know that thing you talk about, that wisdom, that beautiful wisdom that you talk about? Yeah. That- He's eisegeting the word logos from John chapter one verse one in Arche and Halagas, Kai Halagas and Proston Theon. Um, yeah, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Yeah, that's he's eisegeting here and basically making John say something he didn't say. I'll explain here a little bit more as we go. That, right, you know that? And to the Greeks, he said, hey, you know that Logos, that mysterious, beautiful thing with life and fire and, and life? That, yeah, right, both of those things, wisdom and Logos, they are actually one thing. And they found full and complete expression in the person of Jesus. So here's what's so stunning. At a time when it was unthinkable to try and unify religions, John is basically saying, your religion, totally valid, I love it, I'm I'm even using your language. And your religion, I love it, it's beautiful, totally valid, I'm even using your language. But I just want you both to know that there's something bigger than what you've got. Yeah, you heard that right. He's eisegeting John chapter 1, verse 1, using the word logos, as basically trying to convey that the apostle John was really truly saying to the folks uh, that he was writing his gospel to that, hey, listen, the religion of the Greeks, it's the same, re- it's, it's, uh, you, it's, it's all good. It, hey, it's all pretty much the same religion. That's not what John was saying, by the way, and I would point to a, a different writing of John to say that, listen, Scripture interprets Scripture. Was the Apostle John one of these guys who believed that uh, um, that you know you can pretty much follow any religion that you want and it doesn't really matter? It's all the same thing? Answer, no. 
Okay, First uh, John, uh, the epistle of First John, chapter two, verse eighteen. Um, John writes, says, "Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know." the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has, uh, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Hmm. Doesn't sound like um, John was a universalist. In fact, we know from church history that he wasn't. Um, If you're familiar with the writings of the early, 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 early church fathers, they tell us that on one occasion when the Apostle John when his, was in Ephesus, he was actually brought to Ephesus to be the bishop of the churches in Ephesus. He brought Mary with him, by the way. Church history tells us that uh, you know he followed through on his commitment that he made while Jesus was being crucified, You know, uh, where Jesus said, Son, uh, behold your mother, mother, behold your son, that thing. You know, so John eventually, Paul plants the churches in Ephesus. John, you know, after Paul leaves, John then becomes the presiding bishop of the churches in Ephesus, and we learn from the ancient church fathers that on one occasion the apostle John went to the uh, place where you bathe. They they didn't have you know hot and cold running water and pipes and things like that and indoor plumbing. So if you wanted to take a bath, you had to go to a place where there was a public bath. So what did John do? He went into the place, you know, paid his fee. He was going to clean himself up and had taken off his clothes. And um, wouldn't you know it, a known Gnostic heretic by the name of Serinthus uh, happened to also be under the same roof as uh, the Apostle John and his uh, the people who were with him. And John didn't say, oh, listen, you believe in the Logos, I believe in the Logos, it's all good. Nah, let me extend to you the right hand of fellowship. That, no, that's not what happened. No, what really happened is the Apostle John, uh, we learned from church history, from the uh, the eyewitnesses of the event, that he stormed out of the bathhouse. And some accounts say that he actually stormed out without putting his clothes on first, and he pretty much said something to the effect of, fly, Serinthus is in the building, lest the building fall upon us, something to that effect. Um, so no, John was not one of these guys who was, because he just, just because he wore the, used the word logos in John 1, 1, and arche and halagos, kai logos and proston theon, kai theos and halagos, he was, just because he used the word logos, was not, he was not saying, oh, listen, all the religions are the same. What, um, what, um, Shane Hips is doing here is engaging in universalistic eisegesis and overreading his ideas into the text, if you know what I mean. That's not what John was saying, and the fact that John does nowhere in any of the other parts of his writing does he affirm universalism. In fact, he speaks directly against it, and church history tells us that he had nothing to do with it. That's not what he was saying at all. So, what he's saying, this is a flat-out lie that sounds like a plausible argument because, well, he quoted the Greek. Yeah, I know Greek, and what he's saying is not true. There's something that transcends what you have. It doesn't nullify what you have. It doesn't get rid of what you have. 
It just moves beyond it. So John does this unbelievably beautiful thing of basically saying, I want to get past the religious divisions among us in our world. He didn't say anything of the sort. I don't want to get past it. Jesus comes to bring us past it. Uh, That's not what happens at all. Jesus is the ultimate unifier of these various diverse ways of looking at the world. And the only way that anybody can ever see that is by looking at the interior, not the exterior. A black man and a white woman look very different on the exterior, do they not? They look very different from the outside. But on the inside, same longings, same needs, same need for love, for significance, for peace. Okay, now the metaphor he's using here, um, a black man and a white woman, he's basically saying, listen, different religions are just like, well, you know, the same differences that we see when we look at a black man and a white woman. You see, you look at Islam, you see, uh, you know, somebody, you know, an Arab man. You look at Christianity, you see a white woman. You look at at Buddhism, you see an overweight Oriental guy. So, but they're all they're, they all have the same needs. It's all pretty much the same thing, right? That's what he's arguing here. That the differences among the different religions are just surface differences. Different skin pigmentation, maybe body shape and things like that, you know? Peace. Same need for food. Very little separates us on the inside. Now, this is really easy to talk about when you're talking about people, isn't it? Yes, people look different on the outside, but in the inside, we're all the same. That's not what John's doing. He's doing it with religions. Uh, No, he's not. You're completely misreading uh, John 1.1. <laughs> Mennonites and Muslims, they're basically the same. No, 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 no. We're very different. Now, watch what he's going to say here, okay? So, he's, no, we're different, but watch what he does. I beg to differ, right? I mean, when you try and do this with religious systems, you're playing with very dangerous stuff. Because a religious system, the, what makes a religion a religion, is the thing that makes it different from other religions. A religious identity is derived from what makes it distinct. A religious identity is derived from our boundaries. We sing music this way. That's what makes us different. We believe Jesus did this, and so we follow Jesus that way. That is what makes us different. You don't even believe in Jesus. We're different from you in that way. Even religions that have come along and said, our religion believes there are no distinctions between religions is, in fact, a distinction. (laughs) So, so the, these external things, religion is about making these distinctions, and guess what? That isn't a bad thing. Having a distinct religious identity marked by some boundaries, knowing how you're different from other religions, isn't a problem. John isn't trying to get rid of that. He's trying to point beyond it. Keep it, but move beyond it. To lose your religious identity is like losing a sail at sea. The sail is like religion. The wind is the spirit. You need a sail to catch the wind, to harness the wind. But you've got to realize that that sail isn't the wind. The sail is actually dependent on the wind. 
See, here's the crazy thing. The spirit, the wind, doesn't need sails in order for it to move about the world. The sails need the wind. So the spirit, in order for it to move and operate in the world, has no need of religion. But we, those of us made the way we are, for some reason, need sails in order to catch the wind. We need religious structures, external things we can touch and see, and traditions and lineages that teach us so that we can better catch the wind. Now, some sails are built better than other sails. So here's the primary distinction between different religions, you know, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Jainism, Sufism, or whatever. Some sails are bigger than other sails. Some sails are a different shape than other sails. And those differences matter. And sometimes one sail is better than another sail. In the same way that some religions are better equipped to catch the Spirit of God, some religions are not as well equipped to fully capture and be compelled by the Spirit. So it matters what religion you choose. It matters why that religion, uh, why you choose it. So it's a matter of efficiency of catching the winds of the Spirit. Some religions are just not that efficient at at making use of the winds of the Spirit. Others are are way better at it. Yeah. Uh That is what it looks like, how it's shaped. But don't ever confuse the sail with the Spirit, the sail with the wind. Okay, you ready to take this apart? Okay. So if Christianity was all about, you know, Listen, you know, we've got a really good set of sails for catching the winds of the Spirit. And we don't, we don't want you to lose your religious distinctions, all, all of you people out there who are worshiping different gods. Um, you, know, you know, listen, your, 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 your sails are, do a perfectly fine job of catching the winds of the Spirit. But if you're looking for a more efficient way of catching the winds of the Spirit, then come on over to Christianity because we're really good at catching the winds of the Spirit. And, uh, and maybe we're just a little better at it, than, we're a little, you know, a little farther along as far as our technology of, of, of Spirit catching than you are. If that's really what Christianity is all about, then I, my questions for um, Shane Hips are, what would he do with passages like, well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. No, no, let me read this to you. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice in the list, idolaters, okay? Now, I, the, the word idolater has a very specific meaning. Are you ready? It's one who worships an idol, okay? Think back to the first commandment, okay? You know, God is uh, take the children of Israel out to Mount Sinai, right? They've, he's delivered them from, the hand, from slavery through great acts of judgment against the false god Pharaoh and has brought them you know, through the Red Sea up to Mount Sinai, gives them the Ten Commandments, and the first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me, right? Why is that? Is it because God just, you know, he, he, you know, he, he just wants to keep his, you know, the, his people to himself and those other gods, they, you know, they can have their people, but he just wants to have his people. Is that, is that the reason why? No, actually what we learn throughout the old Testament is that those other gods don't exist. 
at all. In fact, you read like read the book of Isaiah, read Jeremiah over and again. God reveals that those who worship other gods, who worship idols, are worshiping basically the creation of their own mind and hand, but that idols are nothing in the world. This is what Scripture says, okay? So um, we've got a qu- we've got a problem here. Is that uh, here in the New Testament? Don't you think the Apostle Paul, if he were teaching contrary to what like John was teaching and Peter was teaching and James and the other apostles were teaching, that they want to take him back behind the woodshed and set him straight? Don't you think? But here Paul says that idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. Huh? Weird, right? Well. Then we would like turn to something like the Acts of the Apostles, okay? The Book of Acts. Now, the Book of Acts doesn't just record for us the Acts of, say, you know, Paul. It records for us the Acts of Peter and and others, right? Well, we've got this interesting story that uh, happens in Acts chapter nineteen. Acts chapter nineteen, and uh, let's see if I can get the context here. Um, here, um, it's Acts chapter 19. I'll start at verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having set, sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That would be Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Okay, he's in Ephesus, by the way. Paul's in Ephesus. And uh, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. They they made silver shrines of Artemis at, at the Temple of Artemis, right? And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Weird. Don't you think that if Christianity was all about, you know, you know, seeing that other religions are just different sail systems for catching the winds of the Spirit— that the Apostle Paul wouldn't be arguing and telling the people in Ephesus that gods made with hands are not gods at all. Don't you think that would be the case? But see, here we've got the exact opposite of what we would expect if Shane Hips was telling us the truth about Christianity. So who are you going to believe? The Apostle Paul? What's written in Scripture? Or are you going to believe Shane Hips? There's another story I can point you to. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. There in Acts chapter 14, Paul preaches to the folks in Lystra. I'll start at verse 8. Acts chapter 14, verse 8. Here's what it says. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Okay, so Paul's on a missionary journey, planting churches, preaching the gospel, right? And he was crippled. So this man uh, was sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. 
And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul, Hermes, because, well, he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was in the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out in the crowd saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea that is all in them. Huh. Weird. I mean, it's, it's strange. Don't you think that if Christianity was all about, you know, Jesus looking past all of our religious differences and that every religion, they're just different sales systems for catching the winds of the spirit of Jesus, um, that wouldn't you see that in the preaching of the apostles? When Christianity was, you know, in its, you can argue, in its purest, you know what I'm saying, right? But we don't see any of that at all. Why do you think that different, why do you think there's such a difference between what the Bible says and what Shane Hips is saying? I can tell you why. Because Shane Hips is preaching his own ideas. He's not preaching you the truth. He's not telling anybody the truth. He's got his own ideas, his own notions, and his ideas and notions are, well, false. He's an idolater. He worships the Jesus of his own imagination, not the Jesus of Scripture. He teaches the Christianity of his own making, not the Christianity that is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He's not making people part of the kingdom of Christ by proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and calling people from their idolatries, from their adulteries, from their homosexual, homosexual sins, from their greed, from their lust, from their lyings and slanders and coveting. He's not calling them out of that into the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. No, he's saying, ah, oh, just catch the winds of the Spirit. Jesus isn't even committed to his bride the church. No, Jesus is out philandering with all the other religions because he doesn't want to be bound. In fact, Christianity, well, the church, well, she's just one of many concubines that Jesus is keeping. If you take Shane Hips's theology as the truth, see, there's the rub. It isn't. All right. We are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Carrie Shook Sermon on the other side of the break. Grab your testosterone drinks or whatever you need to do to keep your masculinity during the sermon. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... 
listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Sermon review time. I'm starting to get the shakes. It's Every time I review a Carrie Shook sermon, good gravy. All right, let's do this right. Hey, oh. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon? Masleration. It's a ma- it's not a sermon. This is a masleration. Maslow's hierarchy of needs stuck with oration. It's a masleration. Comes to us via Woodlands Church in the Woodlands, Texas, a suburb of Houston. Uh, Carrie Shook presiding. The name of it is Time Crunch. A collision of values. See, are you having a hard time managing your time well we took the time to uh, help you with your time crunch problem are you a procrastinator maybe you just don't use a day timer you know something like that you see it's a collision of values you see if you just apply these simple principles that carrie shook has discovered with out of context verses then blammo whammo you can experience t- uh, life change regarding time management huh. I have no idea what this has to do with Christianity or why I need a crucified and risen Savior for this. But anyway, let's kill the music. In fact, let's just start pulling teeth and get right into it. Like I said, uh, you guys out there, if you don't want to have your testosterone levels drained from your body, please make sure that you've taken appropriate steps and have, you know, have bolstered your testosterone levels. You know, maybe watching a monster truck rally. Um, football, you know, in fact, even just an ESPN football highlight would help, help protect your, uh, testosterone levels from dangerously dipping during this particular masleration. Here's Carrie Shook. A red rose. It's a symbol of beauty, symbol of love and passion. My wife likes roses, but to be honest, I don't really see the value in them. I think to a lot of us guys, roses are overpriced and overrated. I mean, they die in a few days. But I have to admit, I don't always see the value in things that are valuable. Like time, for instance. Sometimes I forget that every day 
is a gift of 86,400 precious seconds. And once you spend it, you can never get it back again. A.W. Tozer said time is our most valuable commodity because it's limited. He goes on to say that time is a non-renewable. Just so you know, what he's saying here is true. If you take the time to listen to the sermon, I mean, Masleration, I can't refund your time. Just saying. A non-transferable resource. You cannot store it, slow it, hold it up, divide it up, or give it up. You can't hoard it or save it for a rainy day. When it's lost, it's unrecoverable. When you kill time, remember that it has no resurrection. Time is valuable because once you spend it, you can never get it back again. And when you remember how valuable time is, you'll begin to understand that your time management problems are really a values issue. We think, if I only had more time to get everything done. Or we think, if I was just better at managing my time. But in reality, those time collisions are really values collisions. Because we have these values, these things that we say are important. Really, values are what I believe. The things that I value. For instance, my health. I value my health. It's important to me. My family. Family's priority. God comes first in my life. Yeah, but he won't come first in the sermon. Weird, huh? Those are the things I value. Those are the things that are important to me. But then there's how I live. And sometimes I have to admit how I live collides with what I believe. Sometimes I'm unhealthy. I don't eat right and exercise like I should at times. Sometimes work comes before my family. Sometimes God just gets the leftovers, and I don't put God first in my life. You'd like God will get the leftovers in this masleration. Just saying, you know. Sometimes how I live my life goes completely against what I believe. And when that happens, there's this values collision that causes what I call stress fractures. Apparently, this masleration is all about stress fractures because, I mean, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. Weird, huh? You know? So... <clears throat> We continue. Stress fractures in my emotions, stress fractures in my relationships. And I believe one of the greatest sources of stresses in our lives is this collision between what we believe and how we actually live. This collision between what we say is important and how we spend our time. And if this collision continues on for very long, it always ends in a relational wreck. Let's write that in your notes. Relational wreck. Let's just say that these roses up here represent my relationships. Our relationships are the most important thing in our lives, the most beautiful thing in our lives. But in our fast-paced, frenzied, and hectic, overloaded schedules, our relationships get squeezed out. We get so busy moving at the speed of light that we stop living from our values. We stop seeing the beauty in life. And when we stop living from our values, our relationships suffer. In fact, it's the first thing that suffers because you can't move at the speed of light in relationships. Relationships take time. They move at the speed of life. You can't rush them. And so when you're racing 100 miles an hour in life, your relationships basically go into what I call a values vacuum. Yeah. What does the Bible call it? Uh, isn't your job to preach the word? Shouldn't we be talking about what God's word says? 
I could get like time management advice and stuff like that from Oprah or Dr. Phil or Stephen Covey. I mean, the you know, why would I need this when I go to church? And when my relationships go into this values vacuum, I basically freeze out the most important thing in my life. I basically put on ice my relationships, that which brings meaning and fulfillment in my life. And when I'm racing 100 miles an hour and the way I spend my time is... Now, what they don't show him doing, or you can't because you can't see it because it's radio, is he's taking the rose and putting it in liquid nitrogen in order to make a point. It's not matching what I believe, then my relationships change. They become fragile. Now, on the outside, these roses still look beautiful. They still look the same except for they're smoking. And steam's coming off of these roses. And on the outside, your marriage, your family, your relationships may look great. You may look great on the outside. You're succeeding. You're working your way to the top. You're getting pats on the back. You're winning awards. Everything looks great on the outside. In fact, you're hot. You're on a roll. You're smoking. But everything in your relationships is not working right. On the outside, it looks great. But your relationships, when you put them into this values vacuum, they become brittle. They're frozen. When you put your relationships into a values vacuum, basically, they're susceptible and they shatter like glass. In fact, one problem can come into your life and you think, well, that's the problem that's causing my marriage breakup. That's the problem that's causing this relationship breakup. That's the problem that's causing... Uh, I am so crawling out of my skin. I mean, serious. I have no clue what this has anything to do with anything written in the Bible. You know, all of my problems, but it's really not. It's that one problem that came into your life and it just shattered your fragile relationship because your relationship had been in this values vacuum. The way you were spending your time wasn't matching what you believe and your values. And when your relationships go into values vacuum, the Bible does not portray the problems that we have in our life. The, you know, the consequences of our sin as a values vacuum. Well, we just don't do what we believe. No, the problem is, is that we are dead in trespasses and sins by nature. We, and we Christians still have a sinful nature that we have to deal with until Christ returns or we die. Um, so as a result of it, the reason why we sin is because we're struggling with our sinful nature. Okay? It's not that there's a values vacuum. It's that we've got a sinful nature to contend with. Bigger problem than that. It always causes a relational wreck. But not only does our values collisions cause relational wrecks, it also causes emotional crashes. See, in our lives, we have this emotional energy. and it... So far, not a single passage of Scripture, not a single biblical text. We are 20% of the way through this thing. No Bible so far. It's expendable. I can do some things that really fill me up emotionally and restore passion in my life. And I can do some things that really drain me emotionally. It's kind of like this balloon right here. The air inside this balloon that's filling it up is like our emotional tanks. Some things I do. Why do I get the feeling he just wanted to play with liquid nitrogen? Do fill me up and expand my energy and passion for life. And some things I do just drain my energy and passion for life. And anytime my time doesn't match up with my values, then my emotions go into this values vacuum. And when my emotions go into a values vacuum, 
and I'm not living out what I believe, it just drains me. It just takes the life out of me. It takes away my passion and energy and joy for life. Kind of like how this <clears throat> maceration is taking away my will to live. Uh, folks, I'm sorry, but I have got to get myself a testosterone fix. I think I found it, though. I, I'm going to be looking at how to um, <clears throat> how to carve using a chainsaw. It seems kind of manly to me. Um, he, he, here, Here's a YouTube video explaining it. All right, this guy's got a big old piece of wood there. He's got a chainsaw and... Oh, yeah. Ah. <laughs> Power tools. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Wow. He's quite the artist with a chainsaw, too. Wow. Okay, I feel better. Right? Back at it. When your emotions go into a values vacuum, basically, they just shrivel up. And you have nothing left to give. And some of you are right there today. You have nothing left to give. You're facing burnout right now because your emotions have just shriveled up to nothing. And you're like this balloon. You've got nothing left to give. But the good news is, God wants to restore you. God wants to expand your energy for life. God wants to bring you back, just like this balloon. What? God wants to restore your passion for life and love. And He's the only one that can do that. And in this service, we're going to talk about how God wants to do that. How do you survive these values collisions? Because it's really not about your time. You can throw away your watch and throw away your clocks. Your problem is not time management. Your problem is your values. you got to live out your values, but God wants to restore you emotionally today. So how does he do that? Well, in Luke chapter 10, we find Jesus face-to-face with a values collision. So, oh. <laughs> I can hardly wait. Okay, let me see if I have this right. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus... Is, go, go, is is finding himself right in the middle of a values collision. Really? Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. In fact, let's stand in honor of God's Word, and I'll read it. Mary and Martha are having this values collision. You don't have to read along with me. Just follow along. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Do you you really intend to take the story of Mary and Martha and turn it into something that has to do with time management? Seriously? Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, You're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Lord, I pray that today you would show us the one thing that is needed so that we can align our lives with it. And Lord, I know that every one of us feel overwhelmed and overloaded in our schedules. And we're always trying to figure this out and always trying to manage our time better. And I guess that's an okay thing to do. But Lord, the root problem is our values. So I pray that you would help us live. No, the root problem is our sin nature. 
<sighs> from our values so that when we leave this place, we'll never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. What if you just found out that Jesus Christ was coming to your home for dinner tonight? Would you freak out? Yeah, I'd go, have to go get a day planner because this is all about time crunch, you know. I know some of you, you'd just walk out on me right now. You're out of here. It's like my house is a mess. I've got nothing prepared for dinner. And the God of the universe is coming to our house. I've got to get everything ready. I'm out of here right now. And that's the way Martha was. Martha had a meltdown when she discovered the Son of God was coming to her house. But Mary, on the other hand, she didn't have a meltdown at all. She lived the message we're talking about today. It says she sat at Jesus' feet just listening to every word, hanging on every word that he said. She connected with the God who created her. And the answer to our values collision is having a values connection. It's as simple as that because your values... Serious? Hang on a second here. I need another testosterone shot. <clears throat> Maybe the new uh, trailer for the James Bond movie coming out in next month might help. Hang on. What do you say about a man like that? Three months ago, you lost the drive containing the identity of every agent embedded in terrorist organizations across the globe. 007, reporting for duty. That'll do it. Okay, I can now dive back into this thing that is supposed to be a sermon. Values will either connect or they will collide. Now, before we're too hard on Martha, she wasn't doing a bad thing. I mean, she was making dinner for Jesus. That was a good thing. But the worst enemy of great is good. You can do a lot of good things in your life and miss out on your whole purpose for life. Well, Mary, she was doing the best thing. She was connecting to the God who created her. And the solution to our values collisions is have a values connection. Because when I have a values connection, it connects my emotions, it connects my relationships. Everything falls into place. Whenever how I live lines up with what I believe, I have a values connection. Oh, this is ridiculous. We're to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. For for instance, when our lives don't connect with the values revealed in Scripture. You see what I'm saying here? We need a crucified and risen Savior as the solution to that because when we do that, we've earned God's wrath and hell. And then my time and my values are going the same direction and they're connected and my emotions get connected. My relationships get connected. But without that, there's a, a disconnectedness in my soul. There's this disequilibrium in my spirit until my time and my values match up and they're going the same direction. You're either connecting your values or you're colliding your values. If you're colliding your values, you're stressed out and you're overwhelmed. When your values are connected, you're at peace. Oh, good night. And you're fulfilled. And of course, he's not talking about the Ten Commandments, whatever your values are, whatever. So how do I connect my values? 
Well, there are three steps that we learn in this passage with Mary and Martha. What? There's three steps here in this passage with Mary and Martha on how to connect our values so we don't experience a time crunch. I can hardly wait to hear these. First, I realize the beauty of connection. I re- uh, so much pain here. I realize the beauty of connection. This rose is a beautiful thing, but so many times we're so busy in life. Where in this text does it talk about the beauty of connection? Let me read it. <clears throat> Luke ten thirty-eight. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She said she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. How sad, you know, because isn't that what, I mean, wouldn't that be what we should be doing when we go to church? Sitting at the Lord's feet and hearing his teaching, right, right, right? But Martha was distracted with much serving. She was apparently trying to find her purpose. And she went out uh, up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Doesn't say anything about her not hooking up with her values or anything, does it? But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Yeah, it doesn't say that there was a values collision going on here. Nope, not at all. Nothing about the importance of good good versus great. Nothing said there about, at all. In fact, Martha, um, yeah, um, yeah, Mary, um, Mary picked the greater thing, sitting at the feet of Jesus. I think that's kind of the point here, right? Just this is so painful to listen to life that we don't stop to smell the roses and we don't stop to ask that most important question the most important question the only question that really matters in your life is a question i have to ask at least every couple of weeks it's the big question why why am i doing what i'm doing why am i doing this why am i doing that why am i not living for my values why am i Doing things that... Why are you doing this and calling it a sermon? Why are you disobeying God and not preaching his word and really teaching what it says? Why are you twisting God's word and making it say things it doesn't say? Great question. We should use this more often. Aren't really that important to me? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Because no one's putting a gun to your head. You get to choose your life and what you do in life. You don't always get to choose the consequences, but you get to choose what you do in life. And I have to ask myself that about every two weeks. Why am I doing this anyway? How in the world does this match my values? Why am I doing this activity? Why am I doing this project? How did I ever get into this? Why, why, why? I have to ask that question. If you never ask the big question, why, the most important question you'll ever ask, if you just plow through life without ever asking why, you will be on the road to burnout. You will eventually crash and burn. You'll experience a time crunch. But it won't be about time. It'll be about your values. So when I ask the question, why, it helps me recalibrate my life. When I have this disequilibrium in my spirit, I have to ask, why? Why am I doing this anyway? Because if you plow through in life and you never ask why, you will burn out. It's guaranteed. That's a prescription for burnout. Do you want to know how to burn out? Write this down. Never ask why. There you go. No extra charge. You can go home and burn out now. So that's real encouraging. But you have to ask that question all the time. I have to always ask, why am I doing this? So I can recalibrate my values and my time. So where did uh, Martha recalibrate her values in this text? Huh? 
I don't see any values um, recalibration going on here. So that my time matches what I say is important to me. What Jesus told Martha here. He said, but only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Yeah, that's sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing his teaching. This is why, you know, I did go to church. If you want to sit at Jesus' feet and hear what he's teaching, you get a pastor who actually preaches the word, you know. Underline the words, one thing. There are a lot of things I can spend my time on, but there's only one thing that will last, and that's relationships. What? Huh? My relationship with God and my relationships with others. That vertical relationship with my creator and that horizontal relationship with the people around me. I mean, what do you do when you know you only have about 10 minutes left to live? The mon- um, Mar- Neither Mary nor Martha had only 10 minutes left to oh, You call this preaching? Mantra in the United States after 9-11 was never forget. We should never forget the tragedy and all those who lost their lives in that terrorist attack. But I think, too, we honor those who died by never forgetting what they did in the last moments of their life. Because it'll change our lives forever if we don't forget that. See, those who could find phones, they didn't call their stockbroker to find out what the latest ticker was. They didn't call their bankers to find out what was in their savings account. They didn't call their hairstylist to put off the afternoon appointment. No, they called spouses to say, I love you. For the last time. They called parents to say thank you for the last time. They called children to say I'm proud of you one last time. They called best friends and loved ones to say I love you one last time. Imminent death has a power to clarify our values. To help us see things the way they truly are. And we all know at the end of our lives we're going to look back and we're going to say why didn't I see it earlier? I mean, a lot of those things that I did in my life that I spent my time on weren't really important. There were a lot of value collisions in my life. I didn't connect my values too often, but now I see it clearly. Why did I waste all that time? And we all know. Yeah, the great question. I mean, why are you wasting all this time, like, not preaching God's Word by trying to create the impression that you're actually teaching God's Word? Weird. That no one on their deathbed ever says, why didn't I spend more time at the office? And solve that issue. No. It's always, why didn't I spend more time with my family? Why didn't I serve God more? It's all about relationships. And we know that because at the end of our lives, there'll be this powerful clarity that will come over us and we'll see everything clearly. But right now, let's be honest. Things get real complicated in our lives. I mean, it's easy for me to say relationships come first and at the end of our lives... When you're faced with imminent death, you have this clarity and you get it. You understand what life's really all about. But right now, I mean, life gets so complicated and it gets so stressful. I remember when Chris and I first started the church, we always said when things settle down, then everything will be great. I mean, we were working so hard and we were doing a lot of manual labor. We were putting all the cribs in the U-Haul and sound systems and everything. We would drive it down to the church and we'd set it all up and doing all this manual labor that was just physically draining. And then it was emotionally draining. I remember that all these emotions I would feel and I'd get frustrated and I'd get upset and I'd get depressed at times because it was just draining all my emotions to plant this church. And I remember there were other times when we just had no time for our family, but we'd always say, when things settle down. 
once we get the church planted and once we get everything going, once we get everything straight, things will settle down. Things will be so much easier. But you know what? We learn things never settle down. I mean, who are you kidding? Things aren't going to settle down. In your life, things will never settle down. It's more stressful in my life than it's ever been. Every year it gets more stressful. It gets more complicated. But here's the great news. I get to choose to live for my values. And that's what I've done. That's the great news. Wow. I thought the good news that uh, Christians proclaim, that Christian pastors preach, is Christ crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification. So your great news that everyone got out of bed to come to church to hear is not the good news of our crucified and risen Savior, but the good news that they get to live their values. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think this is a word getting out of bed for. Um, Yeah, you're just condemning everybody at this point because nobody does live by their values or God's values, and that's why we need a crucified and risen Savior. We need better news than the news you're giving us that you say is so great. It's not great at all. Done. I choose to live for my values, and I can choose to simplify my life. It doesn't matter how stressful it is around me. I make that choice every day, and I ask the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? And when I ask that question, it causes me to recalibrate and change, and it brings me back to Matthew six thirty three. I mean, sometimes my life's so complicated that I can't write down the top ten priorities. I can't write down five priorities. I can't write down two priorities, but I can write down one priority. And it's in this passage. Look at it with me in Matthew six thirty three. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Can't wait to hear how he mangles this. He's going to miss the point because I want to point something out to you here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. We've got to get into my, pull up my computer here. <clears throat> but there's, there's a personal pronoun there. Um, <clears throat> seek first the kingdom of God and whose righteousness? His righteousness. The tain dikaya sunain autu. The righteousness of God. His right. Whose? Who's? Not yours. Not mine. His. What's it mean to seek his righteousness? Well, see, that's what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, which I read earlier in the program today. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that is, that righteousness that is by faith, right? See, those who believe in Christ have Christ, God's righteousness, imputed to them as a gift by faith. So when Jesus says, seek seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it's talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ that's given to us as a gift by grace through faith. That's what it's talking about. See what he does with this. God says, put first things first and I'll take care of the rest. Nope, that's not what he says. That's absolutely not what he says. So he's, he's run this through the law, not the gospel. But again, his righteousness, tain dikaya sunain autu. It's his, not yours, not mine, his. Sometimes I can't write down my five priorities, but I know the one that will take care of everything else. And when I write that down, everything else sort of falls into place. Everything else sort of comes along. I write down that first priority, put God first. And my father told me a little formula on how I could measure putting God first. And let me give it to you. You ought to write it down. Give God the first day of the week. Give him the first hour there, the first day of the week. Well, see, your little measurement tool is going to prove that none of them do because it's all law, which basically means that they're going to need a savior, not an example. 
Come to church on Saturday or Sunday, give them an hour, and God expands the rest of your week. Some of you say, well, I get too busy sometimes and I can't come to church. You're too busy not to. Once you do that... Yeah, don't worry. The Woodlands is not a church. You're putting God first, and He says, I'll take care of all the rest. Secondly, give God the first part of your day, the first 15, 20 minutes of your day. Just give it to God and say, God, I'm going to spend 10 minutes with you, 15 minutes praying, reading my Bible, and talking to you about what's coming up in my day. And when you do that, God expands your energy for the day. I get so much more done. Sometimes I think, I don't have time right now. I've got an important early meeting to go to. But I stop, spend 10 minutes, and God helps me get so much more done. Thirdly, give God the first portion of your income. I give God that tithe, the first portion of my income, to show that he's first place in my life. Aren't you righteous? I mean, yeah. All law here, no gospel, none whatsoever. This is nothing but moralism. And somehow God takes care of the rest. And then fourthly, give God the first consideration in every decision. Pray about it. Sometimes we make a decision and we say, God bless that decision. You ever bought a car without praying about it? It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. You know, you'll get a lemon every time, you know. God wants you to pray about every single decision in your life. Yeah, you better pray about buying a car. You'll get a lemon every time, see. God's going to curse your car if you don't pray about it first. Now, those are the four ways I measure if I'm putting God first. And how much do you want to bet if you were honest, you'd realize, oops, you're not measuring up. In in other words, you need a savior because you ain't doing this. No way. The only four ways I know to measure if I'm putting God first. And if I'm putting God first, then all the other things take care of itself. What a flimsy measurement system, by the way. It's love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. I don't think your little diagnostic device is actually testing or, or measuring for that. He adds it all together and takes it all, and he works everything out. And when I put God first, I have more time. I have more energy. He takes care of every detail. How do you know if you're putting God first? Check your day timer and your checkbook. Are you spending any of your time? Uh, going to scream. Any of your money putting God first. Because Yeah, you're not putting God first because Christ is not the center of this sermon. I mean, it's like he's an afterthought. Because that's where the rubber meets the road. Well, that's all about our relationship with God. But what about our relationship with others? Second thing is recognize the benefits of connection. Recognize the benefits of connection. It says, Mary has chosen what is better. Now, connecting is better for a lot of reasons. These are the benefits of connection. The benefits of really connecting in a small group at church. Connecting in relationships. First, it's better for my health. Now, Martha was so anxious and she was worried. She was stressed out. And that's not good for your health over the long term. Folks, connection is not just something nice to have. You can't live without it. But then we say, I don't have enough time to really connect in a small group. I don't have enough time to build relationships. It's busy at work. The kids have all these activities and sports. And we just don't have any time right now. And you wonder why you feel empty. And you wonder why things just seem out of balance and something's not quite right in your life. You don't know what it is. You can't put your finger on it. It's because you're ignoring God's principle, and it's a powerful principle, of connection. You need connection. Uh, Serious. I think this kind of preaching will literally create atheists at the end of this. Because you and I sin daily and sin much. And all this does is put more law on top of what we know we're not doing. As a result, this is a formula for either despair or utter pharisaical self-righteousness. 
But this is not a um, formula for repentance and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. For your health. Not only is it better for my health, it's better for my growth, especially spiritual growth. It says in Colossians 2.19, But they are connected to Christ, the head of the body. For we are joined together in His body by strong sinews. And we grow only as we get our nourishment and strength from God. Underline joined together. Now, why does the Bible use the body as an illustration of the church? It's real simple. The parts of the body grow together. You know, a, a baby's parts of their body, they all grow at the same time. You know, an arm doesn't just keep growing while the baby doesn't grow. The arm gets 10 foot long over here. Now, all the parts grow together. But if the arm is disconnected from the body, that arm can no longer grow. And if you're disconnected from the body of Christ, you can't grow spiritually. Now, back to Mary and Martha one last time. It says in Luke ten thirty nine, Mary sat before the master, hanging on every word he said. But Martha was pulled away by all she had to do in the kitchen. Underline those words, pulled away. Some of you have been pulled away from your values recently. You've been pulled away from the things that are most important because you've been doing the urgent. And some of you have been pulled away from your values. Good night. As if somehow you know, you're just a complete innocent victim. You haven't really sinned. You, you were just pulled away from your values. Some, some weird thing happened to you and, and you were pulled away from your values and you experienced stress. Oh, you poor baby. I bet you broke a nail too. Pulled away from the church. I mean, you're so busy right now and you say, well, it's just a time in our life where it's busy. The kids have all these activities and it's busy at work and but you've been pulled away. You're doing a lot of good things, but you're pulled away from one of the best things, connecting in the body of Christ. And some of you have been pulled away from God. You can think of a time in your life where you're closer to God than you are right now. You've been pulled away. Yeah, see, you, you, you're an innocent victim. You were just pulled. You see, you're not a perpetrator of sins. You were pulled away. Yeah. Oh, that, that's just terrible. I mean, you're such a victim. It's time for you to come home. If you've been pulled away from your values, it's time for you to come back and connect your values instead of having this values collision that's causing you all this stress. If you've been pulled away from the church, it's time for you to come back and to get involved, to make a difference. And if you've been pulled away from God, it's time for you to come home. It says that Mary sat at Jesus' feet and just listened. Can you imagine that Mary had the opportunity just to reach out and touch and connect with the God of the universe? She could touch the body of Christ. Yeah, and um, we, unlike her, can't you know touch the body of Christ right now. But you know what we can do is we can hear Jesus' teaching. You know, sit and hear our pastor preaching Christ. Wouldn't that be great? Right there. What if you could touch Christ's body? In the New Testament, there was a woman who had been sick for years and doctors didn't know what to do for her. So she touched the hem of Jesus' garment and it says she was healed. Some of you need to be healed today emotionally. Your emotions are just fried. She was physically healed. What are you talking about emotionally? What is that? You turned Jesus into the cosmic psychologist. You need to experience healing. Some of you need to be healed spiritually. Some of you need to be healed physically, but you need healing today. Your schedule has been detrimental to your body, your soul, your spirit. Your Yeah, your schedule is causing your detriment to your spirit. Oh, yeah, you're a victim again. Notice, 
Nothing, nothing he's describing here is actually an act of sin that was committed. It's just that you were pulled away. You're a victim of a of a hectic schedule, and see, you're just a good person who's been you know life has crept on, up on you and snagged you and snatched you and pulled you away from your values and and given you stress and and caused you emotional hurts and scars. <laughs> and I bet you have a boo boo on your finger too. Would you like me to kiss it? Mind and any healing. So what if you could touch the body of Christ like Mary, just to reach out there, touch and connect with the God who created you? What if you could touch the body of Christ? Well, you can. The body of Christ is the church, and the church is not a building. It's a people. It's you and I. And you can touch the body of Christ. I want us to bow our heads right now. I see very little evidence that you're actually part of the body of Christ, Carrie. Right now. And I want you to take the hand of the person on either side of you, just grab their hand. Oh, yeah, that, oh, really? That, oh, see, that's one of those things that just bugs, okay? Yeah, you know, especially, you know, I got to hold the hand of a guy, dude, and, and he's across the, and, uh, and touch the body of Christ. Lord, I thank you. Okay, done. Absolutely done. I'm going to have to go watch motocross or something just to pull myself out of this testosterone draining drained funk that I'm in after listening to that masleration that this passing itself off as a sermon there was that was not a biblical exposition that wasn't biblical teaching we heard that was just weird pop psychology and psychobabble masquerading as a as as a christian biblical Sermon, good night. Never fails to um, deliver, does he? Anyway, all right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can uh, subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>